Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Welcome back everyone to the Pelvic Health Podcast. If you're listening for the first time, I hope you enjoy. I also hope everyone has been staying safe. I hope your families are safe during this insane time in the world with coronavirus. Um, But again, we're not gonna talk about that today. I know we've talked a lot about pelvic pain on this podcast. We have yet to discuss more specific information surrounding pelvic pain in men, which is why I have asked Tom Astle to come and join me. I love highlighting people in the research trenches, and Tom is in there right now. He's been working with Dr. Jane Chalmers and Rocco Cavallari, and they've been working on a new questionnaire directed at assessing the impact pelvic pain has on men. It's called the the Male Pelvic Pain Impact Questionnaire questionnaire. The focus of this episode was really this assessment questionnaire that they developed and they've been working on, but as usual, I took him off course at times. We ventured into a few other places, Um, but essentially, we are talking about this very cool questionnaire. Now, besides Tom being my very first patron of the Pelvic Health Podcast, his past involves audio engineering and computer tech, which I only found out minutes before recording, and it definitely made me rethink my podcasting abilities. Um, So hopefully it's not too embarrassing for him to listen. Um, Now, as a man of all trades, he's recently graduated as a physiotherapist working in musculoskeletal private practice. As part of his undergrad, he conducted an honors project where he developed the questionnaire to assess the impact of chronic pelvic pain in men. This project has sparked in him a passion for research, chronic pain, and men's health, and he's currently looking on PhD topics in those areas. So I hope that you guys enjoy this episode. How did you decide that you wanted to do any kind of research in this area, or how did you even pick what area you wanted to do? I was on Facebook today and I read someone put up a quote, which was the, I think it was the Arthur C. Clarke one, where it was, I'm not where I set out to be, but I'm where I needed to be, or something like that. Yep. Um, and I started physio um, wanting to be a physio, and to be honest, first year I wasn't a huge fan of, of research, and I thought it was one of those subjects that everyone just has to do, tick a box and move on. Um, and then I started... I was talking to Jane and ended up talking about men's health and how there are very few um, men's health clinicians and even fewer men, male men's health clinicians. Mm. Um, it seemed like a bit of a niche and then I wanted to talk more and, and work more with Jane and she gave me a few things to read and I realized that there's absolutely nothing. You know, there's very little research. And so it, my interest in research came from wanting to uh, get into men's health. Um, and from there, I've now um, become really interested in the research itself as well. <laughs> I think you, as you would know, you kind of get wrapped up in it. Uh, and there's some interesting things and lots of new skills to learn and 
every time you think you've got a hang of it, there's something different that, <laughs> that gets thrown your way. And you're like, I did not even know this was a thing. I don't even think that ever stops, though. Yeah, no, I don't think so. So we wanted to talk about male pelvic pain. Um, yes. Because I don't really treat males anymore. I had seen uh, for a period of time, I was seeing some male patients who had pelvic pain, say with constipation or some things, but I just, you know, you just notice it was not a passion of mine and I didn't always feel completely comfortable. And I like to know details of every single little thing. It was more anatomy to learn. It was more systems, even though they're similar to the female system. I was still like, oh, I don't, you know, I like being specific in certain areas. So my knowledge of our topic today um, is somewhat limited, which is why you're on here talking about (laughs) it. Um, And also probably why there hasn't been enough podcast episodes on men's pelvic health, but I have always wanted to have more. So I'm very glad that you could join us and teach me all of this stuff. (laughs) So, so if we kind of, if we talk about, you know, you said one of the things that might be really good to talk about is the assessment of male pelvic pain and kind of what's in the literature, questionnaires, outcome measures. So... Um, what is out there? Like how to, how long, I don't even know how long the research has been going on looking at the assessment of male pelvic pain. Is this relatively new? Um, I looked at this actually during the end part of my honors when I was procrastinating. <laughs> I can't remember why I was looking at it, but the first reference to, I think it was prostatitis was in the late 1800s. Okay. Um, but there's been a huge surge in it um, since the National Institute of Health's guidelines on prostatitis, which was developed in 1991, I think. Yeah. Since then, there's been a lot of assessment tools developed um, and a lot more research because we've got a bit of a classification system. Um, now, it was the only one around at the time. So there were there's four different types of, of prostatitis, which is seems to be the, the general blanket diagnosis of, the, of what uh, people are given. The first type is acute bacterial prostatitis. Second type is chronic bacterial prostatitis. Third type accounts for probably 90% of prostatitis, which is chronic abacterial prostatitis, um, with or without inflammation. And then the f- fourth one is asymptomatic prostatitis, which isn't really, isn't really looked at and isn't considered so it's not considered pelvic pain because there's no symptoms. Because that classification system was made so early, that tended to be what uh, was diagnosed, even though uh, there is a huge plethora of disorders which uh, come underneath that. And this recent, in recent years, I think uh, the European Association of Urology came up, uh, came up with some guidelines in 2012 which said everything should be under the blanket term of chronic pelvic pain, Within that, there's pain that we know the cause of and pain that we don't know the cause of. Um, And so that helped to break things up a little bit more. Would men then go and see somebody because they had some symptom of pain down somewhere in their perineum or penis or in some of their genitalia, and it was always kind of decided that it was some form of prostatitis? Yes, uh, pain is the, the cornerstone symptom, but there are there are many other symptoms that usually accompany it. So uh, a lot of urinary symptoms, uh, like urine, urinary urgency and frequency, uh, pain before, during, or after, or all three. Um, 
bowel symptoms with similar symptoms, um, painful bowel movements, feeling of sort of incomplete evacuation of your bowels, sexual dysfunction, which was in, I think it's about, someone might be able to comment and correct me, but I think it's almost 75% of, uh, of men with chronic pelvic pain have some kind of sexual dysfunction as well. So problems with uh, either arousal, erection, ejaculation, things like that, because it's a very sort of complex autonomic system that, that brings those things about that gets disrupted. Yeah. So where has the literature um, kind of concentrated the last, I would say, even kind of five years? Has it gone more into diagnosis or treatment or the neurophysiology? Um, there hasn't been much on neurophysiology, which I want to get onto later. Um, but there's been a lot of research focus on subgrouping because as as we yeah. said there's it's all 90% of diagnoses are within one diagnosis and even within that patients present quite differently and we're doing um there are big large scale studies on say antibiotics which are showing no effect because people are presenting so differently uh, the sample size is too different so it just doesn't work in 2009, there was a system called UPoint that came out, which um, is a basically a phenotyping system. So it's got a lot of different tests uh, that a urologist or a physio uh, might be able to, to do. Usually, the two have to be done together. Um, so there's some blood tests, there's cultures, uh, urine cultures, semen cultures, prostatic fluid cultures. Um, there's internal assessments for pelvic floor tenderness and prostate tenderness and uh, things like that. There's uh, real-time ultrasound scans looking at bladder retention and flow rate and uh, things like that. So a lot of all these tests basically will then spit out um, uh, a phenotype, which will then respond best to certain treatments in theory. So U-Point stands for urinary psychosocial organ-specific infection neurological and tenderness, so pelvic floor tenderness. So you'll be positive for one or more of those domains, and that is your phenotype of, of pelvic pain. And so this has been really successful in the research. There's actually been, when people are recruited and then subcategorized into these phenotypes, and then a whole phenotype is treated together with a particular therapy directed for that phenotype, it's really successful. The problem with it is that it's uh, not being, from speaking to other, other clinicians um, like Sandy Hilton and Carl Monaghan and, and people like that, it's been reported that it's not uh, widely adopted because it needs a really strong multidisciplinary team, which just isn't there uh, in a lot of the cases. Um, so really great research, but limited ability, unfortunately. So who are the people mainly kind of first-line practitioners catching a lot of these patients? Is it physios or is it the GPs or urologists? So this is uh, actually leading into some of the stuff that uh, Jane Rocco and I have done. Uh, we asked all our participants, do you have a diagnosis and who gave you that diagnosis? It was about 70% of people have had a diagnosis and that's uh, mostly within two years or after of, of uh being in pain and having their symptoms, they achieve a diagnosis. Um, it, they typically present to their GP. I think it was uh, from there about 30% were getting diagnosed by their uh, by a specialist, by a urologist, and then it's about 25% by a physio. And then the next was GP and 
then a lot of people are self-diagnosing as well. But so physios are up there in terms of we are uh, discovering this and, and finding di- yeah. diagnosis. But people are typically going to multiple uh, healthcare providers. So typically they'll go to GP first and then urologist he'll refer to a physio. Which is similar to female pelvic pain as well. Um, but I know I'm a big proponent about teaching other physios and other health professionals, uh, especially physios in the Musk world, on how to pick, you know, what kind of certain questions you should ask in a general yeah. Musk environment to be able to pick these people up um, that, you know, has an influence possibly on what you're treating them for, but also so they can get help. So is this happening with male pelvic pain or are you hoping for this to happen? Or I don't think so. And again, I reference another episode of your podcast where I think someone, uh, you were talking about how musculoskeletal physios typically uh, treat every joint in the body, but they forget about the inside of the pelvis. <laughs> you know, So it goes from uh, shoulders down to hips and then hips down to, down to feet, but you miss the bit in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think there's a, a lack of awareness. Um, so a lot of people, when they ask me what, are, what I'm researching and I say male pelvic pain, they say, oh, that's a thing. Um, <laughs> and so I think it comes as a surprise even to people who are in research or are in physio that um, you know, this is something that uh, physios can screen for and physios can treat as well. Do you see anything in the literature, too, about statistics regarding, which I don't even know how you kind of get that information, because um, we know, you know, that sometimes males, uh, there's that, I don't even know what it's called, you know, you're brought up to be more masculine mm. and not admit that you have pain. So is there anything in the research about, you know, surrounding how many men actually admit that they have these problems, or does that come down to how long it takes them to seek help? Absolutely. So there's, um, I don't think there's anything specifically for pelvic pain in men. There are a lot of studies that talk about um, reporting of healthcare problems, and typically men are much worse at it than women. Um, we we don't like to talk, admit that there's a problem. We'll brush it aside and we'll play it down um, because it's not manly to appear like you need help, and that's what. Uh, sort of the societal norms that, have, uh, that we've all grown up with. Uh, and I would argue that it's probably even more so for, uh, for pelvic pain because it's such a sensitive area. Um, you know, a lot of the symptoms, uh, let's say urinary frequency, for instance, I had uh, patients, sorry, respondents to the survey commenting that, you know, they have to cut their meetings short. They can't go on long drives. No way can I go on a flight. I can't go out uh, to meet my friends because I don't want to, uh, I can't explain why I have to leave early because it feels like there's a tennis ball in my rectum. You know, they, it's not a conversation that guys are comfortable having. Um, so I think that does, that does feed into it as well because a lot of these men often feel isolated. Yeah, like women, you know, women that I see with with pain often also say they don't talk to their friends about a lot of these symptoms. So I'm assuming men would be the same, but I always wondered whether or not it was more so um, that they weren't talking to their friends because, you know, sometimes with the the male gender, they're not as um, chatty sometimes as women are with their friends. Yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah. So do you, so you've come across, I would assume, in all the literature, uh, good questionnaires and bad questionnaires in order to help with the assessment of pelvic pain? Yes, 
uh, again, this might, maybe something where someone can is going to post and correct me, but I wouldn't say there are any bad questionnaires because you know most questionnaires um, there are you know there's been a lot of work to get it to get it out there. Um, I didn't having, mean bad. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. I would say the the right way to say it would be there are some that aren't specific. So Thank there you. are lots, much better there way. Lots that, <laughs> there, there are lots um, that a lot of clinicians use because there aren't any specific ones that maybe don't hit the nail on the head, don't ask exactly the right questions, and so and haven't been validated in male uh, pelvic pain as well. So we don't know if the result we're getting or the change we're getting is significant or not because no one's done that that work. Um, the most commonly used one. Uh, um, is one developed by a National Institute of Health um, called the Chronic Prostatitis Symptom Index, CPSI. This is usually the, the first one that clinicians go to um, and it asks questions about uh, pain, urinary function, and quality of life. A change of six or more is clinically significant, um, but there are some reports of patients saying that they've improved, but there's been no change in the questionnaire. Um, and so that's where ours fit in. Uh, that's the sort of the gap that we wanted to fill was instead of asking about pain, we want to ask about um, the impact that uh, that pain has on the lives of, of men. Um, and so our questionnaire is called the Male Pelvic Pain Impact Questionnaire. Um, we've just finished developing it and we're just, uh, we're, we're just about to stop collecting data for uh, the validation studies just to make sure that it's asking what we think it's asking and that we're not doubling up on any questions and, uh, and things like that. And so hopefully publishing mid-year. So why did you feel that there wasn't anything out there that asked impact questions that you were talking about? There are some. Um, there are some other questionnaires that ask that touch on impact um, and touch on catastrophizing. So people often supplement the CPSI uh, with things like the PHQ-9 and the DAS and um, uh, PCS as well. Pain, I should explain all these. <laughs> um, patient Health Questionnaire 9, which is just a, a short, and, short form of a very long one that was developed a long time ago. The DAS, which is Depression, Anxiety, Stress Scale. Um, and then the PCS, the Pain Catastrophizing Scale, um, because those are all components of, of pelvic pain. But none of them ask questions specifically about pelvic pain. For example, uh, has your pain impacted your ability to masturbate? For example, that's not a question that any of those questionnaires are going to ask because it wasn't developed with pelvic pain or even the pelvis in mind. Yeah. yeah. So how many questions are in the questionnaire that you developed? Uh, there are 10 at the oh, moment. That's um, yeah, it's a nice round number. <laughs> um, like my questionnaire has 86. <laughs> Yeah, well, we started with, I think it was 150. <laughs> oh, wow, uh, to 10. So, so, yeah, how we did that was we ran a Delphi, a Delphi study. Oh, yeah. Um, so for anyone that is listening that doesn't know what a Delphi study is, um, basically we, I searched through the literature and found um, and thought and, you know, through talking with Jane and Rocco and uh, other clinicians, thought of as many different ways that it could, pelvic pain could impact someone's life as possible. And we broke that up into categories. And then we gave that list to, to patients. Um, and they said, yes or no, basically, does it apply to me? 
we then did that over a few rounds. So we narrowed down each round and then we ended up getting it down to, I think, 15. Um, some of them were quite similar. So we ended up combining them. Um, so there are a lot of uh, question. There are a lot of uh, questions that uh, related to mood. So instead of saying, "Does it? Uh, do you feel frustrated? Do you feel stressed? Do you feel anxious? Do you feel helpless? Are you worried?" We just combined it into, "Does it affect your mood?" Uh, for example, frustration, stress, anxiety, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we ended up with ten, um, and now we are running a study to validate it, making sure that. None of them are too similar. It might change um, after that, but uh, I guess we'll wait and see. So then once that's done, what happens? It's just out in the big world for everyone to use? So you can find the current, you can find it in its current form um, if you go to my ResearchGate page, which I'm sure I, you can put in yeah, the show notes. Yeah, give me the link and then I'll put yep. it in the show notes. Uh, and then people can have a look at it in its current form. It says preprint all over it <laughs> so that everyone, there's no ambiguity. Everyone knows that it's a, a draft version. You could use it, um, yeah. bearing in mind that it hasn't been validated yet. We don't yeah. know if it performs the way we expect it to perform. We don't know what's meaningful and what's not yet. Um, so we'll await the results of that. If the needs, if any changes need to happen to the questionnaire, then that will get updated um, and it will stay there for as long as we're allowed to keep it there because some um, some journals get funny about the data being out in a, in a preprint beforehand. So yeah. um, we will keep that there as long as, as long as we can and then once it's published, then people can access the paper. Yeah, perfect. So it's the male pelvic pain... Impact questionnaire. I thought there was some health in there. So do you use like a short form for it? Do you do the MPPIQ? Yes. Exactly. Oh, you do? <laughs> yeah. Okay, just checking. <laughs> no. um, any other, so your questionnaire is, that will kind of, you said it's almost meant to replace because it's combining a lot of the other questionnaires when you're screening for <clears throat> pelvic pain? How we imagine it being used is alongside other questionnaires. If you speak to sort of anyone uh, in the men's health world, typically the first thing they do is when they get a request for a new client is say, fill in all of these. We want to know as much as we possibly yeah. can about what's going on. And I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm sure it's probably the same in the female, the female yeah. pelvic pain world as well. Um, and so we wanted to add to that. In the validation study that we've got, um, we might find out information about how it's into to that and how it relates to other questionnaires but we're not sure just yet um yeah. watch this space and then so then what's happening with um objective exams with male pelvic pain i know that there's so many options well, i'd assume yes. that there's quite a few options and i know when people start working um in an area when you're just learning you want to do every single one because you don't know which one you should do yeah <laughs> what options are there bit of a disclaimer if you are a pelvic pain patient listening to this go to someone and get yourself tested get all the tests get all the scans rule out any of the really bad stuff um just because that's important it's very it's rare but it's not worth missing so yeah. go and get um go to your urologist and get the tests and, and it's going to help Australia, you yeah we're we're first line health practitioners yeah. in Australia Absolutely. so we definitely yeah. can come across people who haven't talked to anybody else who do yep. need to have things ruled out the physical 
rectal examinations, uh, digital rectal exams. So you would be um, a, a urologist would palpate and feel and assess the prostate. Um, physios may um, assess, uh, assess, say, the size of the prostate or the, the tenderness of the prostate. Um, but no, we wouldn't be collecting any, yeah. any samples to send off or anything. Um, the main thing where physios come in is pelvic floor assessment, so looking for any tender spots. Um, and then we're getting into the uh, the argument of whether a trigger point is a thing or not, <laughs> um, which a lot, a lot of people say, say it isn't. There are some people who still say that it is. I am yet undecided because <laughs> I'm yet to feel any sort of any. I was going to ask you, I was going to say, so where do you sit on this yeah, one? I'm, I'm I know where I sit. <laughs> It's almost political. Like, it's almost like, you it know, do you, it's like telling someone who you vote for. Do you vote for trigger points or do you not? Um, I'm pretty sure I've been vocal about my stance. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't fit yeah. with what we know about pain neuroscience. Um, but then sometimes within pain neuroscience, sometimes the patient comes in and they need to or want to believe that. And if you don't at yeah. the beginning and you go against what they want to talk about and think and feel and feel like they need, you almost aren't helping them at the start. Like if they come in and you're like, Absolutely. no, sorry, that doesn't exist. That's crap. Absolutely. That's probably not going to be helpful. <laughs> Like when patients come in wanting uh, wanting manual therapy because that's what yeah. they've had in the past, and you know as much education as you do as you want to do is you know sometimes you need to start with that and yeah. use that as an opportunity to educate and start to build towards more active treatment. Um, yeah. Same sort of thing there, I, I imagine, because there's um, there's uh, a program which has gained popularity called the Wise Anderson Protocol. Um, it it came from a book called Headache in the Pelvis, which I mm. highly recommend everyone reads. I think it's a really interesting book. They are very large proponents of trigger point mm. therapy, and so I, I'm a bit iffy about that. But there are some fantastic concepts in the book. Mm. Um, well, and yeah. on that note, um, I had spoken to Lorimer Mosley when he came to talk with Jane at the APA conference. Yeah. Um, and they did mention, you know, but what if, uh, you know, somebody has a tender spot and we massage it and they get better. And he had a beautiful response about mm. why people got better and that it wasn't coming down to a trigger point in the muscle. Um, so he has agreed to come and talk really about that specific question on the podcast. But you know what his schedule is like. Um, oh, is I don't know so how long it's going to take for us to organize that, but I was hoping yeah, for February this good. year. And February yeah. is finished tomorrow, so <laughs> I don't think it's <laughs> happening yet. Um, but yes, watch this space. My personal belief about what's happening there is that it's a contrast. Mm. And so um, if someone feels that feels less pain, there's some placebo effect. And whether it's an effect or a placebo effect, someone's feeling less pain. So it gives you a window to teach something active. Mm. Um, and I also think that it's contrast. So, you know, when you, you've got something that's sore, someone pushes on it, it hurts a little bit more. They stop pushing, it hurts a little bit less. Like and desensitization? So, yeah, possibly yeah. something going on there. That would be my guess as to what's happening without having read into any of the literature on it. Yeah, yeah. So, Looking forward to hearing what, what, what Lorimer says. Oh, I know. Again, 
might take 18 months to make that happen, but <laughs> I will be persistent. Um, so, so yeah, so there's the, the pelvic floor exam, which I am assuming when you say pelvic floor exam, you're meaning rectally, or are you talking externally as well? Any other measures? Both. So there would yeah. be, um, yeah, so you can assess sort of transperineal, um, and then muscles around the pelvis as well. Um, especially some of the gluteal muscles and piriformis and everything like that. Um, but, yeah, primarily it is uh, a rectal, rectal yeah. exam. If, if there's an internal assessment of the pelvic floor with a guy, you've only got one, one option, <laughs> um, which is a rectal exam. So how do you, and I, I mean, I know that it comes with um, experience with treating people, but based on what we see in the literature and because you love neurophysiology you have all of this these questionnaires and outcome measures and you have the physical exam and uh, how are you then taking all of that information and saying okay you know this person is possibly you know their nervous system is on high alert and we need to focus on you know down training nervous system and it's not just it's less physical and it's more kind of psychosocial i think if you've got to be able to read people again with guys that they'll um they'll play things down they won't report it and they'll you know they'll put something to you as a as an offhand comment but really they were probing to see if you were going to ask more about it um and so i think you've just got to be direct i think that's what things like questionnaires are good for is, uh, you know, in, in my questionnaire, one of the questions is, does it affect um, your sex life? Does it affect your intimacy with your partner? And if someone ticks, yes, it affects that a great deal, then it's a much easier conversation to have rather than going through and just asking without knowing what's, what's happening. And um, you can say, hey, you've ticked this. Tell me more about that. Is that affecting this and this? Um, it's a bit easier to have if you do have some of those objective measures. So even if you're not using um, questionnaires as uh, a measure of someone's improvement, it's a great conversation starter a lot of the time. Yeah. And I think for, especially for someone starting new, like I've, I've started using a lot of questionnaires even with normal, uh, just general private, uh, musculoskeletal private practice patients just because it gives you an in to talk about something. Yeah. Um, I think it's then, it's you know, if something's already on the table, it's an easier conversation. Yeah, well, and they can come to you for their knee and you asking them a whole bunch of general conversations and you're like, oh, you know, <clears throat> I think you'd put something on Facebook relatively recently about someone was coming in for Musk and then you found yeah. out he'd had an operation five years ago. Yeah. Um, I didn't read and the rest was, of that, but... <laughs> that was after five weeks of seeing him? Yeah, yeah. And it's something that's affecting him every day? Yeah, and no one asked. And it, and it just no, no one asked, uh, including me. I didn't ask. Yeah, um, yeah. And one that that one day something was something was a little bit off, um, and he kept on hinting that he was going to have a procedure, and he brought it up a few times and let it go, and then I said, "Well, what's the procedure?" <laughs> and then that's when it all started coming out, and he could tell you it was bursting, wanting to oh, talk about it, but yeah. just didn't initiate that. So yeah. I think it's, it might be a guy thing. I'm not sure. <laughs> Guys are typically terrible at bringing things up. Yeah, so we need to do that. Um, yes, we, we need to do it. <laughs> we is and not me. So is there anything else that you wanted to talk about with regards to the research that you've just done? The only thing, other thing I wanted to talk about was one thing that surprised us. When developing it, we wanted to get 
we wanted to develop a questionnaire that was using patient language that had a huge amount of patient input um, because we want to, when we're talking about the impact of the pain, the only experts in that are the patients who are people who are living with that pain. Um, and so we had a, a big list of um, possible impacts. And then at the end of each subcategory, we said, is there anything else that we've missed? And so this you know, we thought would be used just as a little bit of a list or nope, good job, that sort of thing. But people took that opportunity to absolutely spill out their life story. Um, and some of the quotes we got are shocking, some are heartbreaking. Uh, so I've got, I've printed out a couple. Um, We'd love to hear we, them. We had uh, one theme that came uh, where the that came from patients that we hadn't anticipated was uh, a huge amount of skepticism and mistrust of health professionals because they've been to see so many and they've heard different stories from all and they've, you know, been told it's all in their head and things like that. Um, And so we had people saying, you know, no doctor believes me, it destroys me. Um, We had people saying GPs and neurologists needs to do a thorough workup in, in each case instead of just brushing you off due to not being able to explain what's going on. Um, this disease is a joke and misunderstood. Uh, there's some very, very, very sad ones. Um, and there are a lot of people who took the opportunity to say thank you for doing something. Thank you for doing some research in, in this. So it's, it's kind of it was a really nice um, pat on the back. And that's what's sort of driving uh, Jane, Rocco and I to do even more research on the same topic. Well, it's so important because, again, as clinicians, we try to be as evidence-based as we can be, but when the research isn't there, it makes it really hard. Um, So being able to do both, I think, um, is is so so good and I said I can't wait to um, not that I'm treating men but I'm still really excited (laughs) for all the research um, that you're doing to come out and then to see what happens in the future as well thank you so much for your time and for all your support on the podcast because you were the very first patron I Um, was you were and I am I'm so thankful for um, for that and for everyone enjoying hopefully all of this but like I said being able to provide a platform to highlight and and not just because I'm doing research now but like I said because we're supposed to be evidence-based practitioners Mm. um, being able to highlight those who are in the trenches doing the work so that especially with social media and you're on social media and I'll provide all the links so that like I said people can actually follow what's happening over time because there used to be that 15 year gap between what came out and then what we knew and I was hoping that we can you know obviously shorten that and I think Twitter for academics at least um, or anybody who's interested in research I find that's a really good avenue to to stay on top of all those little things that we're allowed to talk about because sometimes I'm not sure what we can say yeah absolutely you're right it's so political yeah but thank you so much for your time that's okay thank you laurie all right so keep your eyes open for him all the links will be in the show notes you can find what he has been working on the preprint stuff that we've talked about today um, and everybody stay safe